I came across a story by a, a minister from 100 years ago or so, would tell a story of two paddle boats, these river boats with the big uh, paddle wheel in the back that would go up and down the Mississippi River. And these two paddle boats were traveling from, uh, I believe it was, where were they leaving? Well, they were going down the Mississippi River to New Orleans. Uh, I'm not sure exactly where they left from, but they happened to leave from the same city and they were going to the same city, New Orleans. And so they end up on the river kind of side by side. And as you can imagine, uh, sometimes one gets a little further ahead of the other. Sometimes the other gets a little further ahead. And and the sailors, after a while, because they're looking for something to do, they started calling out to the other boat when one would get a little farther behind. Oh, you're so slow. Why can't you keep up? And then the other one would overtake them. Oh, look, we're better than you. And a little bit of rivalry begins to go on. Well, after a while, the rivalry turned into an all-out race, and they decided, we're going to see who can get to New Orleans first. And so the race was on, and the, the sailors start driving their, their ships faster and faster and pouring all the coal into the, uh, the big burner to make the wheel go faster and faster, and they're flying down the Mississippi River. Well, a problem came up. One of the boats started lagging behind. You see, they began to run out of coal. They had enough coal to get from where they started from to New Orleans, just not in a race. They were going through the coal much faster than they should. Well, one of the sailors just thought this was awful. They're going to lose the race now. This is really bad. So what could they possibly do? And he found that the cargo that they were carrying happened to be flammable. So he started grabbing the cargo and throwing it into the burner furnace. What do you call that on a, one of those ships? The boiler. Okay, fair enough. He starts throwing it in and the other sailors see that their speed picks up. This is great. They're going to overtake the other boat. They chime in. They all grab the cargo and they start throwing it into the boiler and burning it up. Sure enough, that ship got there first and they won the race. What's the problem? They have no cargo. You see, their goal in leaving the one city and getting to the other wasn't about the race. It was about carrying the cargo. I don't imagine the person that hired them standing on the docks when they get off and they're all high-fiving, woohoo, we won, man, we beat that race. And they say, oh, so sorry, you know, your cargo's all burned up. We needed it for the race. I don't think that 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 landowner or that, that businessman would have said, oh, good job, man, you had to win that race. That was great. I think he would have said, what? You did what? You lost focus along the way. You know, it's in those moments when we're pushed, when we're stretched, when, when life is weighing upon us that often we get a glimpse into what's most important in our own hearts. And for those sailors, they blew it. We're concluding today this sermon series on the prayers of Paul. We've been in it for about eight weeks now. And today I want to finish with an overview. And the reason I want to do that is we've tried very hard each week to dig into one specific prayer, walk through that prayer, study it, pick it apart, say how does it inform us, how does it inform our prayer life, how does it teach us about who we are in Christ, who our brothers and sisters are, how do we love each other better based on that. We've we've gone really passage by passage. But there are a few things that come up again and again and again in these prayers, that I want to now go back and look at a few key topics, because I think by doing this, we're going to see some things that are really, really important 
from these prayers of Paul so that I hope they'll become important for us as well so that we don't lose track and lose focus along the way in our walk with Christ. So I want to start by looking at a couple different passages. We're going to look at three in particular. Because as Paul prays, one of the things that you see again and again and again is that he prays for God's glory, that God would be glorified. Now, right away, we might start thinking, well, what exactly does that mean? How do I even pray for that? Man, I need some food. I need a job. I want my son to get a life. I want whatever it is. I, I need help. That's what I'm praying for. What do you mean praying for God's glory? That's his job. Let's look at a couple ways that Paul does this. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. In a prayer that's concerned with Christian unity and maturity, Paul concludes with this. This is where the whole prayer leads up to. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So here is Paul in prayer for the Ephesian believers. He has some very specific things that he wants to accomplish in his prayer and pray for them concerning. But it all leads up to this idea. And the idea is that Paul's saying, I'm praying all these other things so that God would be glory, glorified. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 12, in a prayer that is about enduring persecution, Paul says this, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 12. He says, we pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we looked at that prayer and we said, wait a minute, these people are struggling, they're going through suffering, their belongings are being taken away, they're being persecuted, they need safety, they need protection, they need justice. And Paul's saying, yes, 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 but as you go through it, I pray God is glorified. That's a pretty big priority for Paul to pray that in that situation. Let's look at Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Philippians chapter 1, 9 through 11 says this. And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So he's praying these big things about Christian maturity, and we'll talk about that in a second. But the goal of all of that is that God would be glorified. So why? Why is the glory of God so important in the Christian life? And can I just say, sort of as an aside, this is something I believe among Christians today we have got to recover. Because our Christianity, our faith has become so me-centered, so self-centered. God help me, rescue me, save me, fix me, change me, use me, work through me, 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 me. Paul's Christianity was drastically different. He came to God and he said, God, it's all for your glory. It's all about you. You do in me and through me what you need to do to get glory. That's what I want you to do. I don't want you to do things my way. I want you to do things your way to get glory. Why is glory so important? One way to think about glory, and there's a lot of different way, ways to do this, but glory is the ultimate demonstration of who God is. It's the manifestation of God. It's the recognition of who God is, that God is God. 
It's him doing God things. And he gets glory when he does things that exhibit who he is. It's the ultimate answer to the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed or sanctify, holy be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That whole concept of God's will being done, his kingdom coming, all of that is a display of God's glory. It's God being God. We glorify God when others see us trusting in him, declaring that he is God and we are not living that way. We glorify God when others see us living that out, that trust in obedience according to his will. They see us, and by seeing us, we become a signpost pointing to God. So God gets glory when people see in our lives the trust and the obedience. But it's not just that. God gets glory in our lives even when nobody's looking. And sometimes I think as Christians, we need to start here because it's easy to think in that moment of persecution, I'll stand up and I'll glorify God. When, when my job or the media or whatever it is turns on me, then I'll stand up and I'll glorify God. Can I tell you one of the things we're struggling with as Christians today is that we're not glorifying God in the private moments of our lives. And then somehow we expect that we're going to publicly glorify him in the public moments of our lives. And it doesn't work that way. God starts in us. I thought about a, a, an Olympic coach training gymnasts. I know nothing about gymnastics, so I'm way out of my league here. But I imagine if a coach is working with a gymnast on a particular really difficult move, I imagine when you get to the Olympics or any competition, and that gymnast does that move, that coach gets glory in a sense. Say, wow, look at what she or he has done. Look at the move. Look at how they were able to work it out. And I trained them to do that. Isn't that great? But now imagine an empty gym. And the gymnast is training. She's never been able to perform the move, but she's trying. She's working on it. She's practicing. And the coach is somewhere else looking down. And the gymnast doesn't even know that he's there. And as she's trying, she nails it. Does the coach get glory in that moment too? Doesn't the coach look down and say, she did it. Look what I trained her to do. Look at what I equipped her to do. And now she has done it. Nobody in the whole wide world might see it. But that coach gets glory in that moment. For Paul and for us, praying for and seeking God's glory keeps the focus on God. So as we pray, and I am assuming here that we are praying, we need to pray, God help us. God save us. God deliver us. We need to pray those things. We need to pray for needs, physical needs, emotional needs, spiritual needs, worldly needs. We need to pray for those things. But above and beyond all of that, we need to pray, God, may you be glorified in this situation. May you be glorified in my life in this situation. May you be glorified in our brothers and sisters in Christ's lives as they endure persecution. May you bring glory to yourself. That is the highest prayer we can ever possibly pray. And I would say it's the banner under which all of our praying needs to take place. God, bring glory to yourself. So we must pray for God's glory. We must also pray because of or in response to God's work. Paul knows when he prays, and we talked a little bit about this in Sunday school, When he's praying, he's not just saying, God, I have this need or this church has this need. I really hope that you'll do something about it. Man, I don't know what you could do, but just show up and do something, God. That's not the way he's praying. 
Paul is praying and he's saying, this church has a need to grow in love. I know that you sent your son to die on the cross to remove their sin and you've put your spirit in their heart and your spirit is making them loving. So I am praying that you would take what you are doing and apply it to this church. Do you see the big difference there? One is a prayer of desperation. I I said in Sunday school, it's the hand-wringing prayer. Oh God, please make this work. Please make it work. The other one is a prayer based on faith. God, I know who you are and I know how you work. I don't know how you're going to do it in this situation, but I will pray based on your work. It's a response to who God is and what he's already doing. And Paul knows this. Now, if you're new in your faith, or you haven't spent time in God's word, you haven't spent time in prayer, this might be difficult to start, but I can guarantee you this beyond a shadow of a doubt. The more you pray in faith for whatever little bit you know about God, and the more you get to know him in God's word and through his word, the bigger your prayers will become and the more you'll have to rest your faith upon this secure and firm foundation. Let me give you a couple of examples. In Ephesians chapter 1, 18 through 23, we're not going to turn there, but let me just sum it up for you. God sent Christ to save us and has raised Christ from the dead and placed him in authority over all things. So Paul prays based on God's past work in Christ. What God has done in Christ, conquering sin, raising him from the grave, appointing him to be the head and authority over all things. He is able to pray trusting in that incredible truth. That's a pretty good starting point for prayer, wouldn't you say? He says another thing about past work in Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. He specifically says that God has saved the Colossians. He has rescued them out of what he calls the kingdom of darkness and has brought them into Christ's kingdom. Well, there's a different place to start praying, isn't it? To pray for a brother or sister in Christ, knowing that the struggles that they're going through are not because they're lost, but because they're found, because God's at work in them and he's directing them. There's a whole amount of faith that can be expressed there. So he claims and he applies the past work of of Christ into these prayer situations. But he also talks about the present work of Christ. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 13, he talks about God is at work strengthening us and making us holy. You ever see somebody, or maybe in your own life, you're struggling in your faith? Instead of praying, God, strengthen me, what if you pray, God, I trust you already are at work strengthening me? You're already here, God. I'm not praying for you to show up and doing, do something. You're already doing it. Help me to trust that and live that out. That's a big, big difference in prayer. But he also trusts in the future work of God. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 5-10, through 10, he talks about God being a righteous and just judge who will judge and who will overthrow the power of sin in this world. Think of the perspective that now gives as we pray for our country, as we pray for the church, as we pray for situations where sin seems so dark and ominous and like it's overthrown everything and we're destined to lose, to be able to stop say, wait a minute. No, no, in Christ we've already won. Christ has conquered this situation that we're praying about. Christ already rules over it. He's going to bring his justice. I know it to be true. Therefore, God, I will pray based on that. Ultimately, when we pray, we should pray according to what God is doing. What we know God's already doing. This week, uh, Friday night, Dave O'Lear sent me a a text saying, hey, do you want to go fishing on Saturday morning? 
Now, Dave knows something about me, and this is why he asked this. I like to go fishing. I like going fishing with Dave. I like going out on the boat. I like going out onto Irondequoit Bay. I li- I don't, are the Brocks here? I don't think they are. I like seeing Dan Brock catch this mammoth fish. It was huge. I like those sorts of things. If Dave knew something about me that I hate fishing and I hate fish and I hate water and I hate being outside, if he knew those things about me and then he asked me to go fishing, well, that's just plain rude, isn't it? (laughs) But he asked because he knows something about me. What if Dave doesn't know me at all and he didn't know that in my deep, dark past, I had some horrible run-in with a, a fish and it filled my nightmares and it was I was in counseling for days and weeks and months and one day he comes to me and says, you want to go fishing? And I run screaming and crying out of the room and go bury my head in the pillow. Now, you could maybe forgive Dave because, I mean, who could expect that? <laughs> but it would be based on ignorance. My point is this. The more we know God, the more we'll know what God likes. And the more we'll be able to pray in line with what God is already doing. The more we know about God, the more we can pray based on knowledge and faith in who God is. You want to pray better? Do you want to have confidence and trust in God's work? Get to know him better. So you can pray based on that work. Our prayers will grow deeper when we know God better. We will see what we are going through, the situation that we're praying about in a different way in light of the past, present, and future work of God. Now these two things, God's glory in Christ and God's work through Christ, are really the foundation of all of Paul's prayer. He prays everything that he prays based on those two things. And they go hand in hand. When God works, God gets the glory. When God displays his glory, it's because he's at work. Based on that foundation, I want to give us three quick things to help us understand these main topics that come up often in Paul's prayer. The first thing is to pray giving thanks for other Christians. Giving thanks for other Christians. How often do we find ourselves in situations where we're frustrated with people? How often do we find ourselves in a situation where we want to pray, God, fix so-and-so, change so-and-so, remove so-and-so, just get this out of my life, change this, God. Paul was involved in a lot of messy situations, and yet his prayers are just saturated with thankfulness for those people, sometimes the same people that were giving him trouble. Why? Let's look at some examples. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul prays, and he says, I have not stopped giving thanks for you in my prayers, remembering you in all my prayers. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 3, he says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. 1 Thessalonians 3, 9, How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? 2 Thessalonians 1.3, we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters. I don't know about you, but if I look at my own prayer life and I ask the question, is my prayer life saturated with thankfulness for other believers? I don't know if I would say yes. I don't know if I would say yes enough. 
I often pray for what I want to see God do and what I want to see him accomplish. But do we ever just stop and give thanks for what he's already done and already accomplishing in somebody else? It's so easy, isn't it, to look at where God should lead somebody, according to what we think. And it's so hard sometimes to admit where God has already brought them and to give thanks based on that. Paul saw Christians struggling with issues, sin mature, or immaturity, disunity, false doctrine. But instead of being critical, he looked further and he saw the evidence of Christ's work already in them. And he gave thanks for that. That's, that would be a great practice to learn in our own lives. Pray in thanks for what God is doing in others rather than in despair for what we think he should be doing. He prays giving thanks. He also prays for love among other Christians. Because Paul loves the church and because he's thankful for Christ's work in other believers, because he's consumed with wanting God to be glorified and aware of what God is already doing, he therefore prays that they would love each other because our love for one another as Christians is one of the greatest displays of God's glory this world will ever see. And so he prays that they would love each other. Let's look at two quickly. First Thessalonians chapter three, verse 12. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May your love overflow. Philippians chapter one, verse nine. And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. In fact, turn to Philippians chapter one, if you would. I want to show you a little bit more of this prayer. Philippians chapter 1. So starting in verse 9 of Philippians chapter 1, he says, This is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. But then there's this little phrase, so that. So he says all that he's about to say depends on what he just said, that they might love each other more and more. So that, verse 10, you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Do we want the church to be pure? Do we want the church to be full of righteousness? Do we want the church to be mature and growing in our understanding of who Christ is? Boy, if we don't answer yes to those things, something's wrong with us, right? If we want all those things, we have to start back in verse 9, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more. We have to start there. Because if we're not loving each other the way Christ has loved us, we're not going to be growing in all those other things that we claim are important. But sometimes we want to skip over the love part, and we just want to get right to the I'm right, you're wrong part. And somehow that's become like this Christian banner. We need to love each other with a Christ-like love. Look, being the church is hard. Being a family is hard. It's hard work because we are sinners and we are dealing with sinners. And when we get together for Sunday morning worship or midweek Bible studies or just gatherings in your homes or getting together out in the community, when we get together, we need to understand this is hard. So it is really important that we pray, God, help us to love one another. Help us to truly, truly love. 
And therefore, we must pray for this, for each other, for Christians that are struggling, for churches that are struggling, for people you're struggling with. God, help me to love that person. Finally, a big thing that Paul prays for is Christian maturity. In order to understand and live for God's glory, and in order to understand and trust in God's work, in order to see that work in fellow believers and therefore give thanks, and in order to truly love one another in the church, we must grow in Christian maturity. We must. Look, I have a two-year-old daughter named Ainsley. Cute as can be. Love her so much. I do not expect her to act like a 10, 11, 12, 13-year-old. I certainly don't expect her to act as a 20, 30, 40-year-old. I expect her to act like a two-year-old because she's two. She gets angry when she doesn't get what she wants. She takes things from her brothers and her sister. She's claimed this one little plastic chair. It is now hers. It makes sense. It's about her size. It travels around the house. I don't know how. I think she carries it. And wherever it is, poor Gibson seems to bear the brunt of this. If he sits in it, immediately her eyes go to him. She's mine. And she will go over and grab his arm and try to physically remove him from the chair because it is her chair. She didn't care about it a moment before until he sat in it. It's a good thing we don't do that as adults, right? (laughs) She also will not stop asking. This is a new thing. She won't stop asking for something until she gets it. She won't stop. We'll be at the dinner table. There'll be crackers on the table. She'll have her food on her plate right in front of her. Can I have cracker, please? Can I have cracker, please? I want cracker, please. I need cracker, please. Give me cracker, please. And she says, please. Kind of annoying at some point that she says it. She will not stop. Yes, you can have a cracker. Eat the food. Well, I need cracker, please. She will not stop. Look, I'm not shocked that she acts this way. She's two. I'm not shocked when people who don't know Christ are sinners and act in sinful ways. They don't know Christ. I'm not shocked when baby Christians, brand new Christians, show immaturity. They're babies in Christ. They're growing. They're learning. We need to not pounce upon them and, and this word of correction, oh, you're wrong. We need to come alongside them and say, it's okay, come on, let's, let's show you a better way. And that's what we do with Ainsley. We don't just say, ah, it's okay, she's two, we'll let it go. We, don't, we say, Ainsley, it's not the right way to do that. But you know, if my 12-year-old daughter were to start acting that way and she pulled her brother out of the seat so she could sit down, we would say, Lindsay, you know better. Stop it. Because she knows. But think for a second. As a family, we have to deal with the immaturity of the two-year-old. We have to gather around her and love her and practice patience. A lot of patience sometimes. We have to love her and accept her and gently and lovingly help her to grow and mature. But what if, what if the whole family acted like her? What if I acted that way and Becky acted that way and Lindsay and Ethan and Gibson and we had a family of six all acting like two-year-olds? You want to come over for dinner? (laughs) No. It would be a nightmare. Why? Because at some point, we know we're going to grow and mature. It's the same way in Christians. When we come to know Christ, it is a wonderful, life-saving, changing from a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light sort of thing. It is amazing and it is beautiful, but it is just the beginning. 
We must grow. And I think that's why we see it so much in Paul's prayers. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, Paul prays for maturity so that Christ would be glorified in them. Do you see the link there between his highest priority of Christ or God being glorified and their maturity? In 1 Thessalonians 3.10, Paul says it is his desire, his mission to help the believers grow in their faith. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19, Paul prays that believers will be strengthened and have Christ dwell in them, be rooted and established in love, have power to better know the fullness of Christ's love, and be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Look at all the phrases in there about growing and maturing, becoming full. Much of Christian error, and therefore a lot of the problems in the church, quite frankly, come from Christian immaturity. Us getting stuck at a certain point in our relationship with Christ and saying, I've grown enough, I know enough, I don't need to go any further. Paul would have none of that. And so he prayed, God, bring people to maturity. Not only did he pray, but he made it his mission to draw others to Christ and disciple them and raise up leaders to disciple them that they might be mature. We have become content to accept Christ as our Savior but then think that we don't have to get to know him any further. You will never stop. I believe this side of heaven, or even in the life that is to come, I do not believe we will ever stop getting to know more about who Christ is and what he has done for us. Because the depth of his love and his power are infinite. So don't stop now. Keep getting to know who Christ is. We must pray that all of us would grow and mature in Christ and never settle for our own selfish and sinful ideas about Christ and then say, well, that's who Christ is. We need to grow in God's word and let it confront our own ideas to change and say, that's not who Christ is. God's showing me more about who he is. We need to grow in maturity. I want you to picture for a second, if you can, A church that is characterized by these things that Paul prays. A church whose highest priority is the glory of God. A church who is trusting in God's work through Christ, past, present, and future. A church where Christians are truly thankful for each other. A church where Christians love each other with a Christ-like love. A church where Christians are maturing in their faith and who are devoted to lovingly help each other continue to mature in their faith. Can you picture a church like that? I can. It's hard because we're messy people. But that's the power of Christ that is at work. And if we believe that that's where God is leading us, then let's pray for it. Because a church that is like that, I guarantee you, will never ever be the product of a leader or a person or a program or a bunch of documents or a budget. It will be the product of the very work of God in the lives of those redeemed by Jesus Christ. That's how we get a church like that. Therefore, we must pray for it to be true. I want to challenge each one of us here at Orchard, based on this sermon series. Let us pray for one another. Let us go deep in our prayers. Let's not just settle for the surfacey things, the obvious things that we see. Yes, let's pray for those things, but let's go deeper. Pray that God would challenge each other in our faith. Pray that he would grow us and stretch us and strengthen us in our love for one another. That he would teach us to keep his glory front and center of everything that we do. Let's go further in our prayers for each other. 
And let's see what God continues to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for the example of the prayers of Paul. Father, I found them to be so challenging in my own life, and I have to admit over and over, I pray way too small. And God, I pray that you would open up our eyes and our hearts to those things that you have done, that you are doing, that you will do, because then everything that we're praying about finds its place in that. And so we don't just pray based on our own desires or dreams or hopes or fears. We pray based on your truth. And the more we do that, the more we'll understand your truth. The more we'll understand more from your word about your truth and apply it to every situation. So I pray, Father, may we not be like those sailors that were taking these things that were so important and throwing them away in our effort to do what we think is most important. Instead, may we come to your word and let you guide us and direct us and fill and infuse our prayer life with the things that are important to you. It's in your name we pray and for your glory. Amen.